Hi, I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk the podcast. Today, we're continuing our series with the 11 skills that all toddlers must master before words emerge. And really, that does mean all toddlers. It means children, whether they are talking on time, these skills come in, or whether they are talking later, these skills come in. And as I've said, this is show number eight, or really show number nine about this topic. But we are up to skill number eight. And if you are not sure what I'm talking about with the the previous shows, I want to show you a great reference uh, that you can use. And all the information that we'll be talking about today is from this book. It's called Let's Talk About Talking. It's a therapy manual I wrote a couple years ago, and it really outlines all Again, the pre-linguistic or what comes before. What are the things we have to hear before? And this book is just loaded with information. And I know you're going to love it, but I wanted to go ahead and tell you about it before we get started so that as you're listening to the show and listening to the strategies, if you're thinking, boy, I wish I had more of this, this is where and how you can get it. And I also want to mention uh, for therapists who are getting continuing education credit for this show, that uh, every show that we do for video podcast now comes with a PDF. It's a great one-page summary of all the things that I'm going to talk about today. And sometimes I read just directly from this because it's the same information that I want to share with you. So if you're a therapist and if you need this continuing education credit, the show is always free to watch, but you can pay for your one-hour credit for only $5, and your bonus is you get the written summary so that you can go back and look at that later, and also so that you can share that information with families that you're working with or other therapists that you're mentoring, and I know you're going to love it. So I wanted to be sure to uh, recommend that at the very beginning of the show. All right, so let's pick back up with skill number eight. And today we're going to be talking about how important it is that a child learns how to vocalize intentionally. So what does that mean? That means that he is noisy, and he is noisy on purpose. He knows that by using his or her little voice that he can direct your attention to him. And so why is that important? It's because all of us, every single one of us, has to become noisy purposefully where we are, again are directing our little voices or our big voices and that we know that we alone control that. It's not something that just happens reflexively like when newborns cry or when newborns even learn to differentiate their vocalizations a little when they begin to grunt, when they begin to moan or something that's not a cry. They learn how to channel those little voices then but a lot of times and again they learn because it begins as a reflexive meaning out of their control control or automatic. It begins like that, but it becomes more volitional as, as babies uh, roll into their fourth month of life and their sixth month of life. And by the time children are about 12 months old, they are really knowing how to use their voices all the time. Even if they're not saying words, they're yelling. You can hear them or they are expressing emotion with their voices. You can tell when they squeal how happy they are and how delighted they are. Or if they are, again, just needing a little attention or if, if they're not really, really hurt, but something has just irritated them, they may, may uh, as I said before, moan a little bit or whimper or do something that, that expresses, I'm hurt and I need some attention over here. And so this is what we're going to talk about today is, is children who are not doing those things or when they are vocalizing, it's still reflexive. It's still something that they're not truly realizing that they control, that they can make a difference with that. So that's what we're going to talk about today with uh, all of these strategies with uh, learning how to vocalize. And again, this is skill number eight. Let's just run back really quickly for those of you who have been taking this course sequentially, or maybe like me, you took some time off (laughs) and we're getting back into this now. So let me just remind you of what these 11 skills are. And it is so important as therapists that we are able to really think about these skills and really own this information. And I've encouraged you to memorize this list because it's something mentally that you can think about as you are assessing a child, or you can think about even before then, even if a friend of yours is coming to you and saying, 
gosh, I'm really worried about my baby. And we always go into how old is he? How many words does he say? But honestly, this is the list of skills that we should be reviewing. This is the kind of information. And we should just start at the beginning. And I've, I've shared on this show before that this is what I do now. Uh, even in conversations with, say, family members who are coming to me and, and saying, you know, I was just at this Christmas thing. And I, we were, I'm worried about this baby who's, you know, 14 or 15 months old. And, and that's what I do as I start and I say, well, let's let's talk about her. Does she, number one, respond to events in the environment? So is she interactive with objects? Does she notice when a toy has lights and sounds? Does she look at that when she hears a noise? Does she turn to try to localize that sound and figure out where that sound is coming from? And so that's skill number one. Skill number two is so important. It's response to other people. So when you try to talk to a child, do they look back at you? Do they make eye contact with you? Do they seem to avoid you or are they in their own little world. That's a child who's not developmentally ready to communicate yet because they don't understand the value in that back and forth uh, communication circle. And that leads us to that next skill, pre-linguistic skill number three, which is begins turn-taking. Not only do they know that another person's there and they like that and they're seeking that person out, not just for what that person can do for them, but for what they can give back. So they begin that turn-taking process. And again, this doesn't start with words. This begins with just this begins with uh, looking at the same thing, which kind of rolls into uh, skill number five, which is shifts and shares attention. And we skip skill number four, which was develops a longer attention span. So as children learn how to be interactive with objects and people, then they are beginning to turn take with those things. And, and remember, this is non-verbally. This could be a look. This could be um, a gesture that they're doing. Let's say that you're playing a game with them, like tickling their belly and we want them to try to tickle your belly back or something like give me five or any kind of uh, turn taking that they might do with a toy. You build the tower of blocks and they knock the blocks over. Your turn was building and their turn is knocking it over. And so again, we'll start to see a lot of these things and when we don't see these things, we're super, super concerned and so as a speech language pathologist or another kind of early intervention professional or as a parent who has a child who's not yet talking, these are the things that we need to talk about and these are the things that we need to look for and help a child learn and master well before we start thinking about what words is he saying. So that's that's why we're talking about all these things. We were up to skill number five, which we were talking about joint attention, which means that the child and you are both looking at and attending to and and conversing, even if you were the only one doing the talking about the same thing. So if I had a child here and I said, look, it's my pen, let's, let's write. We would want him to look at the pen and to want to write with the pen and to watch me do that. And he'll probably want to turn with the pen. But even when he takes it and it's his turn, we want him still including me in that little exchange there so that we're really sharing that event and sharing that activity that we are doing together. Number six is really important, and I've already alluded to that, it's developmentally appropriate play. So does a child play with a variety of toys appropriately? So not that he's just stuck on one thing and he doesn't care about any other toy that he might see, or not that he just doesn't really play with toys, and a lot of parents mistakenly think that their child just doesn't like toys, when really it's that they don't understand how to play. And that always lets us know there's either something going on motorically, they cannot coordinate their little body movements, or cognitively, they don't really understand how the toy works. They don't know what to do with the toy. Socially, they may not have paid enough attention to another person modeling that play with the toy so they didn't learn from you because, again, they were doing their own thing or avoiding contact with other people, and so they don't acquire those play skills. And so there's so many reasons that that may not be coming in. And so go back and listen to that show or watch that show two shows back, so it would be, or three shows back, so 390 it is, uh, I think it is, show number 390. Go back and listen to that or watch that if you are uh, a parent or a therapist and need some more information about how play really sets the stage for language and how it's really a foundational piece and a foundational skill that we want to see our children acquire uh, so that they can go on and learn how to talk and learn how to communicate. Show number, uh, skill number seven was in our last show, number 392, and it was about receptive language and what an important 
piece of information for parents to really, really understand. Before a child begins to use words, he or she has to know what those words mean. Those, they have, they can't just hear the blah, blah. Can't just hear you say cup um, and, and not know that it means this, object that we drink from every day they've, they've got to really understand that that what that word means that reference or that that word references or refers to this cup they've got to really understand that and link that meaning before they can begin to say cup now there are some children who will use words and they're not meaningful yet and if when when they when they echo long strings of those words we call that echolalia so there are some children who do imitate without understanding and there are some children again in, all toddlers in in the process of learning how to talk all young children will imitate things that they don't understand however in order for language to be meaningful they do have to understand you know this is a cup this is what i say when i want a drink this is what i say when i'm thirsty this is what i say when i've dropped my sippy cup under the the front seat and i'm in the car seat in the back and it's rolled under and my mom's saying to me what's wrong what's wrong why are you why are you upset what happened and a child says cup oh my goodness you know, <laughs> you know then the problem and you can reach your hand back there, get that cup and give it back to your child so that they are now happy because they've had their needs met. So kids, again, that doesn't understand, that doesn't begin with them learning how to say cup. It begins with them understanding uh, that, that what the word cup is. And so that's skill number seven. So now today we're all the way up to skill number eight, which again is vocalizes purposefully. And it, again, it's so important that we help kids realize that their little voices are um, under their own control. And so if you have a child who is yelling for you or who is... Um, trying to get your attention with his or her voice or who is doing some babbling back and forth with you or even babbling in a solitary kind of uh, way. In, they babble, <coughs> excuse me, in the mornings when they wake up in their bed or you hear them when you're in the car, you're driving, you hear them back there. You just hear them um, other times during the day when they're just all by themselves and it's not communicative but they're making noise. That's practice and that is perfect <laughs> kids have to be noisy before they talk and so we're really not discussing those children today those children understand yeah i can use my own voice yeah this is cool you know listen to me or you know whatever they're saying whatever they're babbling and when a child is there those aren't the kids that we're talking about today we'll talk about them in a later show where we we shape those vocalizations and again we do it by a lot of the things that we've already talked about with helping them understand more words and really working on all these other things that make their behaviors more uh, communicative with you but today we're talking about just a small subset of children who there's there's usually a medical reason there not all the time but but a lot of the times there's a medical reason so there's something going on with them neurologically there's a brain difference uh, they may or may not have a diagnosis yet and again it may be a medical diagnosis or it could be a strictly a speech language diagnosis like apraxia where there's no visible sign that something is different like there are no muscle tone changes so you can't look at them and see that their little cheeks have lower muscle tone or maybe uh, their little tongues have lower muscle tone so that they have an open mouth posture and you see that their tongue is held forward a lot it 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 apraxia there's really no obvious physical indication but there's it's a neurological origin they can't plan and execute the movements that they are there or plan the movements that they are sending so that they're they that they they have to learn how to do that so that they can produce the words that they are generating in their little brains and actually i said that wrong generation generation is there with apraxia and planning but the execution is actually dysarthria and when we see kids with dysarthria they have muscle tone differences which means that like i talked about before they do have that lower muscle tone so there is an obvious evidence you can see that they are um have again have those muscle tone differences and that's usually not just limited to a child's mouth there are other indications they 
crawled light or creeped light. They were later to, uh, even earlier, later to roll over, later to sit up, later to walk. So when we have a child who has those gross motor delays, because of, again, an obvious motoric difference or a muscle tone difference, you know that those children are really, really likely to also have difficulty learning how to talk because their muscles throughout their bodies have been affected by that neurological difference. And again, it's so hard to talk about all those specific diagnoses like cerebral palsy, like Down syndrome, um, other any other kind of um, any other kind of syndrome or genetic difference that your doctor's already talked to you about. Certainly, those things also mean that a child will be a later talker. And sometimes that, that information is not given to parents clearly enough. Doctors will spend a lot of time talking about walking and may say, may, and that may be more evident, but then a parent might know that a child is three or four and he's still not walking. And again, there's been a lot of medical intervention. They are regularly seeing physical therapists. They're regularly talking about these things. But I have met children who, again, have pretty significant issues that people haven't clearly explained that to parents that when there's something going on physically, very likely a child will have some difficulty learning how to talk to. And so we want to be sure that we're doing that as therapists and that we're sharing that information so that parents get it. And again, not to put a dagger in their heart and really be so overtly negative because we always have hope and we always know that, that we're not going to give up on speech. But parents have to understand that this may be a long-term goal. So that's what we're talking about today for those kids who are in that subset of children who aren't vocalizing and who aren't really really making noise and you know this I always say this on the show and every time I write a therapy manual I get better <laughs> at everything that I'm writing about because it's practice for me and it's it makes me really really think about what it is that I'm doing and it it makes me so much more purposeful and so much more intentional and again more analytical where I'm going back and I'm looking at what do I really do or what am I writing that I don't really do? <laughs> what is it that I've sort of glossed over? And there's a big, big difference between reading information and writing information and telling information versus doing it. And so as I was reviewing for this show and prepping for this show, I have two little friends right now that are nonverbal, basically. Uh, well, yeah, nonverbal. They really don't say much of anything at all. And I have a couple of more little friends who are just minimally verbal, meaning that they have a handful of words here and there. But it so made me excited to know what I know that I know that I know that I've maybe forgotten or, again, glossed over a little bit that I really haven't honed in. Like, this is what you need to be doing, Laura. This is the strategy you need to use. Next time this child comes into your office, you're not going to do anything else. You're going to focus on this. And so this show really, really helped me with that. And I hope it does for you, too. So as you're listening, if you're a therapist, Write down the names of your little friends that you think, oh, that's a good idea for for um, Dylan. That's a really good idea here for uh, Betsy. That's going to be a really good idea uh, today for my, you know, my little friend Logan. And so keep a little note like that so that you keep yourself on track. As a parent, you only have one child that you're primarily concerned with, and that's the child that you gave birth to or who is, you are just taking care of with all that you have. And so be sure that you're taking some notes and writing down some ideas because that's what we should be doing. And again, if we are not intentional, even though we know this stuff and, and you know, like me, if I know this well enough to write about it and to teach a show about it, but then don't do it, what good is it? So be sure that you are, are giving yourself some reminders and, and, and getting excited about it and saying, hey, I'm doing this. This is, some, this is an idea I'm going to do today. This is a change that I'm going to make the next time I see this child. And so uh, be sure that you are being intentional enough about that. All right, so let's talk about now one other really important point before we get to strategies. And that's that sometimes parents don't realize how quiet their children are. And as babies, they may have really even appreciated how quiet their child was. They, sometimes they'll say to me things like, oh, 
He was such a good baby. He never made any noise. He was not fussy at all. And as a mom, you're going, I don't have a difficult baby. This is easier than I thought it was going to be. I'm so blessed. I'm so lucky that this child isn't screaming his head off like another kid that you may know or another child that you may have um, an older sibling there and you've lived through that once. You don't want to live through that again because it was awful for you and everyone. But at the same time, all of that quietness is not normal. Typically, developing babies are noisy, and they learn how to use their little voices pretty early on and begin to differentiate and begin to use different vocalizations at different times. And that's how a mom learns, okay, this cry is means that she's hungry versus this cry means that she's bored versus this cry that means that she's hurt. And so, again, children learn how to do that. And some of that is reflexive, that intensity when a child is, you know, something uh, – Let's say they get, uh, let's say a bee stings them. Of course they're going to wail because that is a big assault to their skin and to their bodies. But children do learn as they move toward that first year that they can control that and they can, they can use that. It's powerful. Uh, and, and we want them doing that because, again, these are precursors to words. And so we have to help children learn that they can do that. And we have to help parents see when a child is not noisy. And I have gotten better with that. Uh, and, and I told you, when I hear a parent say, oh, he's so good, he didn't make very much noise, you know, that, that produces a sick feeling in my stomach because that makes me aware that one, that child is not developing and that these problems have been longer term and, and number two, longer term than a parent realizes because they'll think again that everything was just fine until one day this thing happened when honestly things weren't fine all along. And like I said before, most parents will know when they're at this point uh, as, uh, when there's a medical diagnosis or when there's even a, you know, a neurological difference that, that they are aware of, but some parents don't. And so we have to really talk about that and help them understand that it's not normal for a child not to be noisy. It's not normal for a toddler not to be demanding vocally they, and, and non-verbally too. I mean, they should really want, they should understand that they need you to do things for them and that life goes better <laughs> for them. It's a lot easier when mom does these things for me. And if something's wrong with me, I need to let somebody know so that things can get better. Or if I just want to hang out with you or if, you know, that, that joy that children share too when they're laughing and smiling and, uh, as I mentioned before, squealing, when they're doing all those little fine kinds of vocalizations too, when they just want to hang out with you and be with you because you are their world. You know, that, that we want them using their voices then too. And so we have to really make parents aware when that's not happening because the first thing we need to do before we can get them to talk is help them learn how to make noise and use their little voices purposefully as we are talking. So I think we've covered all of our background so that now we're almost ready to talk about strategies. Let me just say too, I've mentioned a couple of couple of diagnoses like cerebral palsy or like Down syndrome that again there are muscle differences so that's going to the speech diagnosis that correlates with that or that uh, is due to that the speech part of that is called dysarthria and so um, my, my point here is we cannot talk about every single medical diagnosis or what might be wrong you know is a, a lot of times though parents think there's something structurally wrong so they think there's something wrong with their throat or wrong with their vocal cords. You know, they'll say, or, you know, they don't say vocal folds, they'll say vocal cords. And so parents will, again, think there's something wrong with the child's mouth when a lot of times, you know, you have to really walk through that process and, and talk with them and give very basic explanations as a speech-language pathologist about how the whole process of talking, how all of that begins. And you may, I usually start with talking about, um, you know, it's not just right here. We actually have to breathe that air in or the process of respiration and we have to push that air up. And so when kids have little core muscles that are not strong because of their muscle tone differences and they're not coordinated or, or whatever word you want to use there when there are there when there is low muscle tone that they may not have enough air to push that up when there's high muscle tone that it's not coordinated. And so they push it up and again, they, 
they phonate or they make noise at the level of their vocal cords and then it's pushed out you know with resonance and with articulation and again if you're a parent you don't don't turn off the video the whole <laughs> the whole podcast isn't going to be about this i'm just using this example for speech pathologist with how we talk about this with you know again parents think it's just their mouth and they don't understand all of this and actually you know i was just uh, talking to my daughter this morning who's in grad school and who's taking her comps right now and she's she was giving a basic uh, description of what she's going to write to describe the normal processes of communicating and she really started with the acoustic nerve with you know children have to hear they have to hear that signal and that has to go to their brain and I thought Macy you are so smart to <laughs> remind your mama here <laughs> who's worked for a long time that that's how we really 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 need to start that with that whole explanation and again we all know that children who are hearing impaired are certainly going to have a difficult time learning how to talk because that incoming signal they can't hear it or it's it's they they have hearing loss so that it's not as prevalent and you know sometimes that happens too uh, because of ear infections and so think talking with the parent about how it's supposed to be normally what's that normal process and then you can point out you know what's gone wrong and again you don't have to be technical about it you don't have to go into that whole subset review you know respiration phonation resonance artic you don't have to do all that but you do need to talk to parents in a way that they understand that you know if they're thinking the problem is here and it's really a neurological problem or sometimes therapists will do things where they're again looking for a medical explanation but we're not really addressing the neurological difference and so or or the learning difference that's resulted from even a neurological difference that we haven't verified you know we don't have mris and cat scans in our uh, slp offices or at school or on a home visit if you're doing early intervention but you do know that you do know basically maybe potentially you know there's there's a brain difference here and so sometimes we don't talk to parents about that enough and they really need that explanation because otherwise they just make it up on their own when they could just be completely wrong and so you need to talk to parents about that really really basic explanation of all the physical and neurological processes involved in uh, helping a child learn to speak and so talk to parents about that and again adjust it for the for your audience here um back before we moved to central kentucky and had our big life change i treated lots of uh children of physicians and therapists and you know you can really talk more about that and be as technical as you want to be but don't feel like you have to do that every single time and honestly those those medical professionals know more about that kind of stuff than i as Miss SLP master's degree here will ever know because that's their thing and so sometimes we almost go overboard trying to really share information when the simplified version would do and so be sure that you're you're adjusting that you know you certainly aren't going to want to bore a parent to death if they truly don't care but parents do need some kind of uh, basic explanation of what's gone wrong primarily so they don't invent a reason that's not there or so they are not targeting the wrong thing or thinking it's the wrong thing when uh, there's a, another explanation would be closer to the truth all right so now that we've talked about the background about how important it is to help a child learn how to vocalize purposefully and what could have gone potentially gone wrong and why it's important because it is a prerequisite nobody talks without uh, meaningfully without knowing how to make noise let's move on and talk about the most important part of this which is what you will do to help a toddler learn how to vocalize purposefully and as I say over and over and over again in the therapy manual um, that we referred to let's talk about talking and every time if you've listened to this show you've heard me say this over and over but it's so important before we change a child we have to change ourselves so we have to look at what we do what we are doing and the differences that we can make just by adjusting um, the strategies that we use and if you're a parent you may be thinking I don't use a strategy I, I just I don't know what she's talking about yes you do <laughs> your strategy might be to just talk to a child your strategy might be taking the doctor and say what's wrong I don't I don't understand why he's not talking and so again there are all these things that we do and so if your parent don't think about this as 
um, as technical, more technical than it needs to be. These are very common sense, practical things that you as a mom or dad can start to do today that will make a difference in helping your child learn how to vocalize. And you know, it's important if you try a strategy and it doesn't work. Usually there's just as much reason for why the strategy didn't work and that, that gives you a lot of information too. Sometimes it's that you need to try harder. You need to increase your frequency, meaning how often you do it, or you need to increase your perseverance. You're just going to keep going and keep going and keep going and keep going and keep trying that. And sometimes it is that you need to tweak something about how you're doing something that makes it a little easier for that child to begin to acquire that skill. And vocalizing is the same way. So as you're listening to the show, especially for parents, know that what you're doing really, really, really matters. And so sometimes it's not that you're going to get 10 new ideas that you've never even thought about. It's going to be that you tweak something that you're already doing. And that's really important for therapists to think about too. And when we go in to parents, especially in our home programs, in our state early intervention programs, and we're in a family's home and we're thinking that we just we just have to uh you know we could go either way with this we we could either make things so complicated that there's no way that a parent can do it and again usually that's because we're caught up in ourselves a little bit and how smart we are and how much blah 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 we can either go that way and make it so complicated that parents after you leave they say what in the world was she talking about i i that lady is out there i don't know i don't understand a word that lady said or we can make it so simple that we are parents who are just oh they are so thirsty for information and they want to hear from you and they want you to tell them things to do that they haven't tried before when really it's kind of in the middle there we need to take where a parent already is, what they're already doing, and start there and help them learn how to move forward. And we're still teaching new things. I mean, oh my goodness, we better be teaching new things as therapists. But we may have to start again with where they already are and already talk about what they're already doing and how we can adjust those little things at the very beginning so that a parent doesn't feel overwhelmed and then we start to unfold with hey and here's some new ideas and here's some new things and you can gauge that too if you're a therapist with how um receptive a parent is at the beginning and how you you can tell too if they are on their phones for the whole visit and are really kind of checked out from you their attitude probably is here's my kid fixing and you've got to really have some honest conversations where you're saying Things like, oh, come on, I want you to learn this too. You know, I'm only here one hour a week or one hour every two weeks. Or you're only coming to see me, you know, one time a week for 45 minutes. That is, that leaves a whole lot of other time for your child that he or she should be doing these things. So unless you know what to do, and again, you can say that with a twinkle in your eye and with the, the kind of a playful tone of voice like I'm trying to model here for you, that makes it easier for a parent to participate. We don't want to embarrass parents, and we, we don't need to be calling out adults for their own bad behavior. And, and, and But sometimes with a parent, it is really, really easy, especially with a parent of a a visibly a kid with a lot of different needs you know sometimes during therapy they do feel like oh I can breathe I can sit here this is this is my time uh, when you know again I get that and I understand that but at the same time I say to parents you know this therapy is just as much for you as it is your child and honestly right here at the beginning I may be teaching you a lot more stuff than I'm ever going to be able to teach her right now because she's two but you're a grown-up and you're a mom and so I want to use our time in therapy right now for you so that I can make sure that it, that we we get all this going at home for you right now and as you get better at this and as I know your child more we're going to change more things about him or more things about her but right now our hard work is making sure that you know what you can do at home and I have found that works oh gosh with every kind of parent. I mean, whether they are, you know, have more initials and degrees after their name than I could ever hope to have, or whether they, you know, dropped out of high school in the 10th grade because they, they, you know, whatever happened. And so be sure that you are, again, giving parents this information and talking about it at that just right level. And we call that with a kid, we call that meet them where they are, but we do it with parents too. We have to meet parents where they are too so that we can really, really understand where they are with understanding their own understanding of what's happening with their own child 
and then help move them forward too. And sometimes we really need to, to say things like, this is super important and I'm going to need you to do this a lot at home before we ever, ever, ever going to be able to see any progress. And that really sets the stage too for parental participation up front. And at teachmetotalk.com, every day I get emails from therapists who say, how can I help a parent buy into therapy? What can I do to increase participation for all the kids on my caseload? And that's the number one thing you can do is really, really meet a parent where they are, Figure out where they are, <laughs> first of all. Meet them there. And then adjust how you communicate with them and the homework or the things that you teach them. Really, really, really uh, figure out where how, how that's going to work best. And, and that's how you get them to buy into therapy. Is you make them excited about what they're already doing that's right. And then you tweak it and you start from there. You teach them new things. Oh, my goodness, we have to teach them new things. But I, we start with where they are because they are in the best position to help their child, not you. And that's something I say to parents a lot too, is, you know, nobody is ever going to love your baby like you do. You're his mama. You know, you, God gave him to you. And so, you know, you start there with talking with a parent about, about that and how they are in the very best position, not just because of the proximity. You know, they're with their kid more than anybody else, but because of that emotional connection and that, that bond that they already have. So that's, that's what you do. You might have to spend a lot of time talking to a parent about that at the very beginning. That may be something that you talk about and talk about. It may be that a parent can't even hear that yet, that you've got to sprinkle that message <laughs> throughout your first several visits with them so that they understand it. And, and you know, again, it's you got to meet a parent where they are so they can move forward. All right, enough about that. So what are the strategies? What are the real practical, functional, meaning something that's going to make a difference in that everyday life of that child and that family? What are some things you can do? And so we're going to talk about one, two, three, four, five strategies to help a child learn how to vocalize consistently. And number one is get noisy yourself. And so you may be thinking that I mean talk more. Nope, that's not what I mean. If it were going to be uh, enough for a child just to hear another person talk and then begin to talk, that would have happened already. <laughs> that child has heard language, unless, of course, there are situations with extreme neglect or something like an inst a child who's been institutionalized in a facility. It's not very good. I'm going to be real honest here, though, and kind of put back a hat, put on a hat that I wear all the time. You know, I think we have an epidemic especially in our country, in the United States, and in all developed countries with technology addiction with parents so that children really are emotionally neglected. And so mom spends all day doing this <laughs> or every free minute she's back in her phone or back on her tablet or dad or, you know, and it used to be that, that it was that way with television that, you know, families kept TV on all day long every day. And then we talked about, we talked about, and, but then it, uh, you know, talked about TV and that we don't need to leave a DVD on in the background all day. And we, you know, because parents are distracted by that too. And the the thing is, children today, when parents aren't spending enough time with them, just talking with them, just playing with them, just really, really interacting with them, that really is emotional neglect. And I'm not the first person to say that. And if you feel like you're hearing this message for the first time, you know, wake up. You don't have to hear it a hundred times before you begin to make that change and think about that. But there are families, and again, this can happen no matter what the socioeconomic level is, whether a mom is uh, educated or not educated or whether they have resources or not a lot of resources that where we see families where moms are just totally engrossed and kind of self-absorbed in their own little world and their own little device and they're not really talking with children as much as they should and so no wonder their child isn't learning language now the child probably is hearing language because i guess mom I, my guess would be that mom hands that phone off to him <laughs> in the store or when she needs him to be occupied so that she can do something else. So they're hearing the words. My point here is, is you do have to hear language to learn how to talk. You do have to have those models to learn how to talk. But for children who are in this subset, that's probably not what we're talking about here. It's that we um, need to make noise that children have a much higher probability of being able to imitate what you've said why is that 
or the noise that you've made so that they can learn how to produce their voices and use their little voices themselves. And guys, that doesn't start with words. That starts way down at that uh, noise level that we talked about. It's kind of sound effect kind of things. And even before we get there, we have some noises that, that start out reflexively, meaning automatic, that we make volitional or we decide a, a child learns he can do it on his own. Think about something like throat clearing or a fake cough. Babies love doing that, typically developing babies by six to eight months. That's a really fun little game with them. At church yesterday, I had a, a friend who was telling me that her little uh, grandbaby is eight months old, and he's learned how to whistle. And why does he do that? Because she whistles for her dogs to come inside <laughs> when uh, she's trying to get them the dogs to come back in. And her little eight-month-old grandbaby has learned how to whistle. And again, why did he learn how to whistle? Was it because his mom said, hey, I think it would be a good idea for you to learn how to whistle? No, it's because his grandmother did it, does it a lot. And he's learned how to copy her through that. And so I'm not saying that we're going to make whistling a goal <laughs> for a nonverbal child. I'm just saying those kinds of sounds come first. So... Fake coughing, fake sneezing, any kind of noise that we're going to make like that. Instead of talking, we're going to model a lot of that. Now for we, and I'm going to give you some more examples in a minute, but let me just say for we chatty patty speech language pathologists who we are all about words. We are all about talking. Oh boy, um, you know, teach me to talk loves to talk is something that some uh, uh family member of mine said to me over the holidays about one of my children and I thought that was hysterical and he does like to talk and I'm proud of that but I, I just thought that was so funny because you know again it's just so many words 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 and we don't really need to do that with our little guys who are not vocalizing purposefully we need to back it way up to a level where they can be successful and so for us as therapists uh, that's a problem for some of us because we, again, think about that language piece and those words. And so, you know, if you're like me, you may have to pull that back. And really, the best way that I've done that is to keep myself a little list and keeping data, not on the kid, but on me. So how many sound effect, play noises, play sounds, uh, animal sounds, just little, and we're, uh, again, we're going to talk about some real specifics, but I keep that, I track that data on me. When I am realizing, oh, this kid isn't, really isn't even noisy. And so sometimes, again, it might have taken me a few sessions to really, really figure out. Um, I'm, I'm not modeling this like I should. And if I don't model it like I should for me in the session, and, you know, I've worked all these years, you know, been a speech pathologist a lot of years, if I'm not remembering how to do it and to do it frequently enough and to keep doing it, mom doesn't have a chance because she hasn't heard this person who's supposed to know what they're doing do it often enough and so as a therapist you've got to really be careful about that and, and again you be intentional about that and so keep some data on yourself and I try to just pick noises just based on what I think a kid likes so what does he react to sometimes it's a gasp like <gasps> you know I'll, I'll see a kid really alert on that you know I'm pulling out a toy for us to play with and you know, I try to get excited like that, and I, I'll use a word like, wow, or ooh, you know, those kinds of things, but really, even earlier than that, controlling that inhalation and exhalation with, you know, like that, 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 that um, audible gasp there, so that a kid can hear that. Sometimes a kid is so interested in that, and I think, oh, that's it. That's one of the things I need to really do, and so I'll just make myself a little note so that I remember, you know, gasp. <laughs> When it's appropriate in, in a session. And again, that carries a lot of communication, doesn't it? You're excited when you're doing that. Or you're saying, look at this. Oh, I haven't seen this before. Or it could be that you're scared. It could be, you know, that kind of thing. But pay attention to those kinds of little noises that you're making. And be intentional about it. Keep track of it. See what a kid perks up on. And make sure that you include that a lot. And then beyond that, as a therapist, talk to your parent about that. Say, did you see what he did? Did you see that he looked at me? When I gasped like that, did you notice that? And mom may say, you know, no. And so you'll say, watch. I'm going to do it again in just a minute. Watch. Watch for that. Watch his little face. And you um, will help a parent kind of see that. and help. That's how parents make changes is they see you making changes. And they see you 
really, really being so purposeful. And they, sometimes parents will think, you know, this is all just like a big secret that people just, when we went to grad school, they, we just got, you know, a file download and we all knew this. No, we, had to, we have to learn all this stuff, you know, like you're doing today, listening to the podcast, however you listen to it on iTunes or Blog Talk Radio or however you consume your podcast. Or if you're watching on YouTube, you know, we're still learning. We're still learning how to do this. And we're really learning about their child. And so you tell a parent, hey, I, you know, I've had to really work at this. I've had to really make, you know, less words, less talking and make myself more intentionally noisy and use these little sound effects things. So let me go ahead and give you some examples of the things that work best for me. And remember, you're going to have to model these. You'll have to do them over and over and over and over and over before you'll probably ever get any hint that a child is able to do this kind of thing. So some of the things that I like to do, a pant, like a, and again, we talked about that, the gasp just a, a second ago with the sound and the pant is kind of the same kind of uh, sound for you parents that aren't really thinking about that. That's, you know, no voice is activated with that. It's just your breath. So, you know, you would do that if you were playing with a dog, if you were playing with a pretend dog, you know, a toy dog, if you were looking at a dog in a book, <laughs> if you were talking about the dog at grandma's house, oh, we're going to go to mamma's today and Skipper's going to be there. What does Skipper say? <sighs> you know, the dog's name is Skipper. Uh, that kind of thing. And so panting is a good one because, again, if a child can breathe and control his or her breath, there's potential for him to be able to do that sound. So that's one I start with a lot. Another one that kids will do a lot is kind of a growl, like an err, or even even if it might be more vowel-like, like an ah or oh or something. Just listen for what you, th you think that a kid could do. And, again, if they're not talking or babbling, how do you listen for it? It's just in those reflexive sounds that they make. So do they make something that's like a grunt, like uh do that. Model that sound for them. And we'll talk about that a little bit with reciprocal imitation in just a minute. But uh, that's certainly something that you can do and listen for. Those are the things that work great for me. And then throughout the day, be sure that you are using more kinds of noise, more kinds of sound effect kinds of things, and a variety... Uh, and try to put those, pair those with activities. Why? So that you remember to do it, first of all. And so that a child, again, gets enough practice hearing it so that it's not new all the time. And there, when, when there's enough repetition there, there's more, uh, it's more likely that a child will try to imitate that. So think about some things that you can do, like loudly slurping your drink and pretending like... <laughs> Those kinds of things are so fun for toddlers. And so you talk to your parent about that. And you say, you know, you model it. So in the session, I don't know if you have let children have sippy cups in a session, but I do <laughs> because I'm usually feeding them and we're using snacks to communicate. And, you know, I don't do a lot of feeding therapy, but I want to see how all that musculature works. I'm going to see how coordinated they are when they chew and when they swallow, just for my information with how physiologically things are working and it's kids like to eat and that's one of the most functional things that a parent a goal a parent will say is oh I would love to know when she's hungry I would love it if she could tell me when she's hungry I would love it if she could when we walk into the kitchen instead of just pointing or throwing herself on the floor having a fit when I don't know what she wants I would love it if she could tell me what she wants so super super uh, way to target functional communication and and I like using snacks with kids because again I think that they're so motivated to want to do it and so you talk to a parent about that you say you know every time you're going to have a snack or every time you're you're eating I want you to really make a lot of little sounds associated little play sounds associated with eating so if you're, when you give them the cookie you're going to go or mm, 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 or some sound and listen to yourself you may already have some sounds that you already say if you're a therapist I know you do but as a parent you may have already come up with something you know you may you know you may even you, it may be more word like you may say something like good but it's that part of that when you say that when you're being real fun and real animated that the child might begin to Im imitate and really expect you to do it and so think about those kinds of things where you are loudly slurping or where you are pretending to eat those kinds of things uh, I want you to be sure that you're incorporating that into uh, mealtime and snack time with the child all right so other things that you can do Anytime that you see an animal in your home, or like we said before, I gave you that example about the dog, 
model that sound. And so, you know, especially if you, if you have a child, you know, I live in very rural Kentucky. So all of my kids like to play with tractors and farm animals. And, and, you know, that's just a part of life out of here. We all, even when we live in town, we live in the country. <laughs> and so model those animal sounds all day. And, you know, therapist, if you'll think about this, so many times when a child comes to us for an evaluation, we'll say to a parent, does he have any words? And they'll say no. But then you'll, something makes you ask, hopefully you know how to do this already, but you'll, you'll ask about an animal sound or an environmental noise and they'll say, oh yeah, he, he tries to say quack or, oh yeah, she tries to say, you know, meow. Or, or they'll say, oh, when he hears a car, he'll try to make a car sound, vroom, vroom. Or when he's pushing his car, he'll try to do that. Why? Because those sounds are novel and those sounds are easier. And so that's why kids want to do it. And those sounds always come first. And so if you have taken my course, Steps to Building Verbal Imitation and Toddlers or heard a podcast where I'm talking about the chart uh, that tells us how words develop and how we get to words and phrases, the, the steps along the way really emphasize these play sounds. So we've got to do that, particularly when a child is nonverbal. So we've got to really get in there. And like I mentioned before, things like clearing your throat, you know, a fake sneeze, you know, choo. You know, it's more fun if you put something on your head when you do that. I use toys on my head all the time. If we're playing potato heads, I'll put that potato head hat on my head and sneeze it off or uh, anything like that. So be sure that you're looking at that and how you can keep those sounds going throughout the day. Anytime you're gonna hear a toy make a sound or if your microwave says, you know, beep, 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 that's what you should be saying when the microwave is finished. You should make that sound too. So really amp up those sounds, make those more important, make those more frequent and do that. So I call that getting noisy. So. There's some great ideas for that, and let's talk about talking. If you need more specific instructions, get that. Um, the second thing that we want to do is imitate a toddler's sounds. And I already mentioned this with reciprocal. Okay. All right, now I'm back. We're going to pick up talking about reciprocal imitation. I actually had someone come into our office, and actually it's that grandmother that I just gave the example of her, that her grandbaby's just been whistling. So I don't remember exactly where I was, but we are going to pick this back up with the second big strategy that we want to do to help minimally or non-verbal uh, children become noisy is reciprocal imitation. And that is just a really fancy way of saying whatever the child vocalizes you do back to him so that means if he clears his throat <clears throat> or sneezes or squeals ah, you do it back you do that back so that he can hear oh she just made the same sound I made now will a child be able to put it into the, that kind of complex thinking no but he will, if you do it often enough, start to pay attention that you are doing the same sound he's doing. And to hopefully start that nice turn tagging that we talked about before where he does it, you do it. He does it, you do it. He does it, you do it. And so that's a really, really great way of getting children to begin to engage in that turn taking. And then, then a lot of times with children, you imitate them. And then guess what? They begin to imitate you. And so it's a great strategy to use. And again, as a parent, you may already be doing that. You just didn't know you're doing it. So if you hear him say, gah, 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 or, you know, gada, bada, boo, whatever he says, babbling, and you do that back to him, you're already doing reciprocal imitation. You just didn't know it. And as a therapist, that's how we need to describe that to parents, that we talk about the value in that, and then we get kids doing it. Now, Here's an important point of reciprocal imitation. They have to be able to see you to know that you are doing it with them. So if you are just, do, if he is here playing with his blocks and making some sounds, let's say he makes a little raspberry as he's, or a little car sound as he's trying to play. So he's doing, and then you do it from across the room, but he doesn't know that you've done it. There's no value in that. So you've got to do it where he is eye to eye and face to face with you. So if you heard him, if he's down here and he is playing with a little car, or he's, he's, you see him even just taking a block and doing that, you get down there right in his little face. 
so that he can, and you, he makes this little car noise, whatever he does, you do it back to him, but you want him to see you doing it, and you want to act excited about that, and you want to make that a really, really big deal. So that was strategy number two, reciprocal imitation. Strategy number three to help a child learn how to vocalize is move. Movement is a fantastic way to get kids' bodies regulated, meaning pulled together enough for them to be able to vocalize on purpose. And so usually with movement, again, this is listed right on that PDF summary that I was talking about. Uh, we, usually with kids who are very, very, very quiet that you hear hardly anything, this is your best strategy. So any kind of physical movement can work, but you're gonna aim for 10 to 15 minutes of continuous movement. So again, you, I think about getting their little bodies revved up enough to vocalize, or sometimes it's calmed down enough to vocalize. And so either way, movement works for that because it helps their bodies get in that just right spot so that they can begin to vocalize. So I, I use movement all the time, but uh, sometimes you have to be more intentional about that. And sometimes a parent will say, well, you know, I, we live in a really small house. We don't get outside very much for whatever reason. Or they might have a child, again, with some really pretty... Uh, significant physical limitations so that they are not doing that but you just talk about any kind of rocking that they can do or bouncing them on their legs if they are really are moving already and can jump jumping on the bed is great uh, I don't have a lot of big fancy equipment here uh, in our new clinic but you know I do have a blow-up bouncy house that I use a lot with kids who are really really quiet because that jumping and just rolling around on that uh, you know and who doesn't like a bouncy house right <laughs> just moving around like that really will help a child uh, get to be more verbal because again he's more active and so sometimes if a child doesn't respond I think you know he's just not satiated enough yet he hasn't had enough movement for that to make a big difference so we run and we run and we run and we run and 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 again it might be something a little less um uh, space you know if you have less space you may not be able to do that very much but even in a room you know you can't see this entire lobby here uh, of our clinic but even just running from wall to wall and wall you know back and forth and back and forth and back and forth so a game like chase or something like that will really really help a child begin to do that the next thing you can do uh, in addition to moving is <coughs> excuse me change your space and so sometimes children, when they're moved to a new location, they're going to be completely different than they were. And a lot of times parents think about that, oh, it's clamming up and shutting down. But I've found that if you take a toddler to a larger space and you get rowdy and you get rambunctious, they are too. So something like a gym or uh, a park that they've uh, not been to before, even something like an empty garage where you can just bounce a ball and you can just, uh, where it's maybe a little echoey. Uh, the therapy room that we use is pretty large and I've just noticed with the acoustics in our new place here, it's pretty easy to get uh, almost an echo going because that sound is amplified. So do that and again, while you're doing this, don't talk more. You've gotta go back to strategy number one and just be really noisy. So you're gonna, when you're running, you know, you may use a word like go, 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 go. But if you think about that, really uh, you're being pretty fun when you're doing that. And again, it is a word. We do want them to say that, but you're making that more repetitious and it does sound more like uh, that play kind of sound or an environmental sound than it would a real word. So that's what you want to do there is just fewer words and more sounds. And so even things like, you know, wee, As you're swinging those kinds of things or as you're playing with a balloon don't worry about saying oh watch mommy as I hit the red balloon up all the way to the ceiling you know think about things like you know woo and ah and oh you know those kinds of sounds as you're playing that's what you want to do so that you can really get a child vocalizing with you and again it does not matter you might be thinking these aren't words this isn't real speech therapy the same vowels and consonants that we use to produce those kinds of play sounds are the same vowels and consonants that make up words so think about that as you are uh, moving with the child and getting a child uh, changing your space with a child and also so that you can tell a parent that so that they understand that they that they don't have to talk as often with these kinds of kids our number one strategy 
you know, of course they're going to have to talk to help a child learn how to understand words, but you're really getting them noisy, less words, more sounds. And certainly as we incorporate movement, as we change our spaces, we still need to hold on to that overriding principle is that we're going to vocalize more with just sounds that a child might be able to do. And so that's your premise there. Another really important strategy, and this is strategy number five, that uh, I learned from uh, reading uh, Pamela Marcella's voice or Pamela Marcella's book about apraxia and helping a child with apraxia find his voice. She calls this vocal contagion. And I have just learned that parents don't know what I am talking about when I say vocal contagion. So I call it crowd noise. So that's where we do everything we can with several people in a room to make it kind of noisy. And so what does that do? It takes the pressure off a really quiet child so that he can start to vocalize. It kind of sets the, the expectation that we're all going to make some kind of noise. So I see children in groups. I ran a playgroup program years and years ago, and this would happen a lot, where during free play, where we're all playing with cars and trucks, and we're all playing with baby dolls, or, or most often it's free play with movement, where we are all in a running game, or where whether you know, you're in the gym or on the playground or wherever you are where kids are making noise, that's when kids begin to be more noisy because they can hear other people doing it. And again, don't worry about what you're saying exactly. You just want that, that rumble or that murmur of a lot of people talking. And you know, parents of children who are late talkers or who are uh, nonverbal or minimally verbal will start to say, you know, I don't really hear her make a lot of noise except for, and then they will give you a situation, and if you analyze those situations, she's really talking about when other noise and other people are present talking. So it might be uh, for a kid who goes to preschool, a teacher might say, well, it's when we sing. I notice that he's, he, he only makes noise during circle time and when we're playing outside on the playground. And so crowd noise and movement are the, the, the what's been going on to really facilitate a quiet child who's been, you know, again, doesn't make, does, doesn't make very many sounds. That's when they start to do it. So how I do it in therapy, if I'm at a home visit, is talk to parents about, okay, we're going to have the other kids here or the neighborhood kid. If they don't have any other kids, it's just, you know, mom and dad and me or just me and mom and the child and we'll just play. And so I'll say to mom, now look, you don't worry about me talking over you or you talking over me. We're just going to all play and we're going to make as much noise as we can during this. So it's a super technique. You've got to stick with it a little while. It's probably not going to happen in the first minute or two. And you actually might have to do this over several sessions. And I wouldn't take a whole hour to do this, but I would maybe do it <coughs> excuse me, 15 or 20 minutes where, or I might do it through the whole hour where we're playing, but we're changing our materials. We're not just having, you know, we're not just going to sit down and do this, uh, you know, with a baby doll. And again, it's, you usually can't do it as often with a book or with a puzzle or something that's pretty structured. You're going to have to do it where there's a lot of, uh, like I said before, a lot of free play where if you all have cars and trucks where you're all making those noises, you know, vroom, 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 or um, you know, you know, whatever crash noise you make or a beep, beep, or honk, honk, you know, anything like that. And again, try to make it less word-like and more sound-like, more environmental noise at the very beginning. And just do that and keep that going. And, and, and really talk to parents and say, you know, this week one of the things I want you to do is write down when you hear her talk more often and see or hear her not talk, but try to vocalize more often. When is she noisier? And so see if you can come up with some commonalities of that. And that'll give you information as a therapist about what kinds of situations really promote vocalization, but it will also help you help parents analyze any patterns and where they start to think about what that that way, where they're really problem solving, where they're doing the detective work here and really thinking clinically where they're thinking, oh, she makes more noise in the bathtub. Well, what's your recommendation going to be? Take more baths. <laughs> so think about that. Think about how you can work into uh, situations that a child is naturally more vocal. And again, I took a whole lot of time in the show to talk about how important purposeful vocalization is and intentional vocalization and how identifying 
what a child can already do, the sounds he or she can already make, and how we can make those purposeful. And a lot of times, it's just really increasing the frequency. And, and guys, I'm going to tell you as a therapist, so many times it's just that you become aware of this and that you talk to a parent about this. And this, again, is just for a small subset of the children that we see on our caseloads. Thankfully, most of the children that we work with are already vocalizing. They can make some noise. But for the children who aren't, these are the strategies we would use. We're going to get noisy ourselves. We're going to imitate any sound that they're making. We're going to move with them to get their little bodies regulated so they're more likely to vocalize. We're going to change our space because children uh, sometimes do different things. And if they can hear some different acoustic feedback, you know, where it's they can hear their own little voices. Oh, one thing I forgot to mention. Any toy that will amplify sound is usually a good idea. And I even have a prop and I forgot it. But something like a cheap toy microphone or any any of those great, cool electronic toys right now that that will, um, a child produces a sound and the toy will imitate that sound. Those are some good choices that some of the families that I'm seeing, especially one family right now is getting a lot of good results. Even something like a bucket or a paper towel roll <laughs> that changes, that highlights that a child is making noise and then changes that. So you can just lean into a bucket, you know, ah, or ooh, or something a kid can already say, a syllable like da, 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 da. Make it fun. Make it play-like. You know, you're not going to say, here's the reciprocal imitation portion of our therapy session today. It is your turn to make a noise so that I can imitate you. You know, that doesn't work. That's silly. And so think about what you can use, again, that a family already has. It's going to be easy for a family. Everybody's got something like a bucket or a bowl or a pan, a pot. So show a parent how they could do that and how how that is. And listen, if you're a therapist and you haven't tried that, you're going to love that strategy because <laughs> that works really, really well for lots of kids. And, and you don't even expect it. And honestly, it feels like a gift every single time it happens uh, with a kid who's been so quiet. All right. If you need more material, idea, more ideas for what materials you can use or activities, uh, think about getting Let's Talk About Talking. You can find it on my website at Teach Me to Talk, and that is all for today. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and thank you so much for joining me for this podcast. Whether you've listened uh, in your car, driving to uh, the next kid's house, or whether you're exercising, or whether you're a therapist or a parent sitting down watching YouTube uh, looking for ideas, I just wish you wild success uh, with these things because uh, they've certainly worked for me. And again, thank you so much for joining me for TeachMeToTalk.com's podcast. Thank you.